call this meeting of the Community Investments Committee to order. Today is Tuesday, October 1st, 2019, and we begin the agenda with the call of the roll. Hello, so I'm, this is my first time doing this, so I may or may not mess up your name, so I apologize in advance. Um, uh, do we have Chair Chuck Collins? Present. Commissioner Roberto Ordenaglia. Present. <laughs> All right, Commissioner Linda Parking, Parker Pennington. Not present. Commissioner um, Marcus Shelby. Present. Commissioner Navia Musla. Present. Commissioner Janine Chioda. Present. Okay. Thank you very much. Item number two, may I call for any general public comment? This is the time that we love to hear from people in the audience that may have uh, matters that they would like to bring to the focus of the committee. Seeing none, may I now move on to item number three, the Director of Cultural Affairs report. Thank you, Chair Collins, and good afternoon, staff and commission members. Um, no members of the public today, but um, welcome. Um, I have a pretty brief report, and then I will turn it over to Director um, Lumby to share any programmatic updates. Um, I did want to just share one human resources update for the community investments team. Um, we are thrilled to have the majority of the team seated in all the various roles of the community investments team. Um, we do have still one vacancy, and that is our program officer for arts education. That was the role formerly held by Liz Ozel, who retired this summer. Um, and so I just want to thank our senior program officer, Jeremy Bonilla, and the team for drafting that job description. And I think it's our goal to have that posted by the end of this week. So we invite everybody to um, help spread the word as we look for great candidates to uh, fill the shoes uh, of the program officer for arts education. Um, I also want to take the opportunity to welcome uh, officially to our first Community Investments Committee meeting our new Deputy Director of Programs, Joanne Lee, who is joining us here at the dais. So uh, welcome, Joanne. We're thrilled to have you. Thank you. <laughs> um, and um, with that, I'll hand it over to Director Mumby to share any other programmatic updates um, and maybe an update on the guidelines that have been recently. Yes. So our team has been very busy um, updating guidelines, posting guidelines, and rolling out our new applications. Um, we are working to transition to Salesforce. Um, it's a slow process, so we're currently doing form assembly, which is part of Salesforce, but a little bit more user-friendly. Um, working in partnership with Grants for the Arts, who's already kind of rolled this out, learning from their um, their, their experience. So the team has been busy doing that and um, everything's been going really smoothly. Um, all of the workshops that are, are taking, currently taking place for all of the guidelines and then all of the applications are due on a rolling basis in November. And then we'll roll into our panel season. So we'll be doing a call for panelists shortly. This, this week we'll do a call for panelists. Um, so if you know folks that would be great to educate, um, please recommend them to, to apply through our online system. Um, and that, that's kind of taking up our time internally. We, we are also doing our special um, grants, which are predominantly the supervisor enhancements. So this year, it's grown every year since my tenure. Um, so we're now at about 2.5 million of um, additional grants from supervisors. 
um, a total of, I think, 28. And so those guidelines are all out on Friday as well. And I think one of the most exciting things, which um, you all may have recalled from the last um, commission meeting, uh, the new American Indian Initiative. So that actually kicks off on Friday. Um, you do have copies of the guide gallery, um, fresh off the presses. Um, we did bring down a, one of the mounted posters that two of the artists have created to commemorate, which will be autographed. They'll, they'll sign them for the first 100 participants at our Arts Commission sponsored events, and we hope to see you all there. Um, we are very excited by the partnership with Commissioner Boosley's organization to do our projections of the portraits. Um, so the, the gallery opening begins at 6. We'll have it catered by um, a Native American caterer, Crystal Wapapa. Um, she'll be providing kind of traditional foods. And then um, at around 7.45, we have a local group of women singers who will lead a processional of the um, attendees to the monument to see the projections. Um, so it'll be a great evening. We hope you can all join us. And um, the initiative itself is, continues to grow. We have about 20 partners now. And um, as more and more people get wind of it, we have more people kind of coming on board and helping, letting, asking us to help advertise their events. And um, the marketing pieces are up on the kiosk, lots of selfies on social media. Uh, people are very excited. We have spottings on the buses. And um, so it, uh, it's, it's very spectacular. People are very excited. So I hope to see you all on Friday. Um, and that concludes my report and the report of the staff for today, Tuesday, October 1st. Just a, a little question. Would you just give a little snippet? I know it may come up under the Ebony and McKinney Awards uh, matter, but just a little snippet about the uh, convening that we had two weeks ago. Sure, so um, we had our fifth annual grants convening. Um, each year it also grows. Um, this year we awarded the Artistic Legacy Grant to Antlute Books um, and our Artistic Director, Joan Pinkfoss, um, which was partnered with several um, poets who, who gave readings to honor her, one of which was actually the award winner for the Evan McKinney Arts Leadership Award, Juliana Delgado Lopera. Um, and we had an incredible panel that was curated by Senior Program Officer Jan Bonillo around access. Um, so it was quite um, a challenge for staff to really look at access from a different vantage point. We, we focused a lot on race and ethnicity, but this time we're, we focused on ability. So we had um, ASL interpreters, we had closed captioning, um, we had a panel of, of artists and other folks that represent different components of, of differing abilities. Um, Jeremy, would you like to speak more on that? Or am I doing a good job? I'm doing a great job. Okay. Um, but it, it was well received. Um, and it, I think it was also very mind-opening for us to understand fully about accessibility. And um, there's, there's a lot of balls in the air to do that, and a lot of work to lift that. Yes, Commissioner. I, I just want to say that was a really good panel. And it, oh, it really opened up my eyes. You know, I've never had to really think about those situations. I've never had to organize, you know, a panel like that or 
think about the, the accessibility of all of the members of our community. And I just thought it was a really well done panel. I was glad I was able to see it and I want to commend uh, those who put that together. So thank you. Yeah, it was um, very proud of our, our team. So thank you, um, and under Jaron's leadership, of really pushing that forward. And it's also creating more conversations about things like our guidelines and our online system and city systems and funding. Funding and exactly. And so Jaron is is working with multiple city departments and. How do we push those conversations forward? We've been such a forerunner in the field of equity when it comes to race and ethnicity, but how can we continue to push the envelope about when it's coming to ability? Um, so I think that is something that um, is very, I'm very proud of our team for, for the work we did on that. Thank you. Maybe we could get Robin to say something about the video that you showed. Um, <laughs> I, want this on the, I want this on the record. Sure. Well, I mean, there was just really power, powerful material to work with on the reframe, refocus, reclaim video that chronicle or was um, kind of an overview of the early days removal. Um, and so during the photo, the two-day photo shoot that was organized, um, there were a number of folks who spoke um, doing what's called a box pop where three different questions were cycled through and people could respond to those questions, which were, you know, how did seeing the early day statue impact you? Um, what kind of public art would you like to see? And then also, what was the third one? Oh, why is there a need for space like a, a, an American Indian Cultural Center? So that was an invitation to all the people that were being photographed. And then there were specific folks identified um, by our director who were invited to have a formal sit-down interview. Um, and so working with SFGovTV, um, we kind of just made a story and we were able to get some of the footage of the removal because of the folks who were there that day. Um, we went into some of the archives. We did a lot of um, research into Creative Commons images of other offensive statues and other movements by American Indians um, throughout just time. And we wanted to put this removal within the context of the ongoing kind of activism that's been happening for centuries. Um, and so was, that was kind of the framing of it, an opportunity for the Native community to say the things that, you know, we, that folks didn't have a chance to say during the, um, the efforts to remove the statue. And so that was what this video was supposed to be an opportunity to do. Well, I want to commend you, Robin. And I know that we don't yet have access to it because it's going to be previewed at the board meeting, isn't it, at the commission meeting? It's going to be shown on November. So we hope to um, air, air and perform broadly during one of our events, so the November 22nd event, which will be attended by a, a wide range of representatives, not only from the Native community, but from the broader community. Um, so try not to oversaturate. Right. Oversaturated, but we could play it at a commission meeting if that is desired. What I thought was important is that, as Robin was saying, the context of, of where we look at these monuments and what they mean. And so 
in, in, in what's going on in Washington High School, right? Or, or how we're actually looking at the show that is at the De Young, uh, you know, the, the pictorial show about, you know, who are the, in, the natives of Hawaii and, and how they are shown contemporaneously and now. So we're very much in the middle of that conversation. And I was really, Robin, I was really so honored that this was documented. I was in Austin yesterday, over the weekend, and Austin has a lot of Civil War monuments, right? So they are very carefully examining those, and they are removing them, and they're putting them in a place where they can be looked at, you know, ensemble, to really confront that without the oppression that goes with saying that this is correct because we have made it into a monument. So I, I, I know that this is something that is still in controversy, but I'm very proud that you documented that and you brought it forward to the committee. Thank you. It was, it was really fun to work on. Thank you. And, and I also just want to commend Robin, who also created the Legacy Grant video for Amlud, who it was as spectacular as her previous video. So it, it, it speaks to the various talents that my team possesses and really working to try to bring those up and give them those opportunities. So um, we're very grateful that Robin is part of our team and able to do that work. Thank you for leading it. Thank you. Is there anything more on the uh, Director of Cultural Affairs report? Seeing none, can we move to agenda item number four, the Cultural Centers Program? I'm sorry, are there any public comment on the Director's report? Seeing none, may I now move to agenda item number four, the Cultural Centers Program. As you recall, at our last meeting in August, we deferred the discussion, though we received the presentations of the Cultural Centers. And so we didn't want to cut that short if there were some things that we wanted to discuss or put on the record you know, about the importance of that set of presentations and, and to open up discussion to uh, the committee for further thought. Yeah, and if I can just add to kind of kick off that conversation, I just wanted to on the record again thank all of the cultural center directors who gave of their time and uh, very thoughtful presentations. Um, it's a lot of work to consider their work in uh, review for the year and to come and present that on public record. So just wanted to thank all the cultural center directors who gave of their time um, in August to do that. Um, I think just as we kick off this discussion, kind of thinking of this in two different ways. One, looking at the broader cultural equity endowment and the cultural centers program for any policies that, uh, that kind of we should be looking to in the future as staff as we support the cultural centers and the activation of the four city-owned buildings and then the three virtual centers. Um, so kind of on a broader policy level that might be across all the cultural centers. But then if there was anything that stood out as strengths or areas for growth that we want to be acknowledging from each of the individual cultural centers that staff could take back and relay um, as we work with them to um, move their work forward into the years ahead. So uh, we are thrilled that under Proposition E, there are some additional resources to the cultural equity endowment. Um, and so those resources will secure some of the capital needs of the four city-owned buildings. Um, just on that note, I'm also very, very happy, uh, and I know I mentioned this on public record, but I can't mention it enough, um, but that in the budget this year, um, we received an additional $3 million of general fund capital for the cultural 
Cultural Center buildings, um, which is very critical in terms of us meeting some of the different maintenance on the four city-owned buildings. Again, that's the Bayview Opera House, the Mission Cultural Center for Latino Arts, Soma Arts, and the African American Art and Culture Complex. Um, and very thankful to Mayor Breed and the Mayor's Budget Office, as well as uh, the Capital Planning Committee for securing those additional resources. Um, in total, we have about 1.1 million in Proposition E dollars going towards capital. And then the three million I just mentioned, plus an additional about 700,000 uh, that was in the general fund allocations from the capital plan. So in total, that puts us at about $4.8 million in fiscal year 20 for capital on the four city-owned buildings, which is definitively the largest capital allocation we have received. And so um, I know I've been working with Joanne Lee, our new director of programs, and the uh, community investments team to pick up where Kate Faust, who was our capital analyst, who's now moved on to the um, capital planning committee, where she continues to advise us in her new role. Um, she's actually in that new role overseeing the capital planning committee's work on cultural centers. So it's a wonderful opportunity to have someone from our team kind of on the capital planning side. Um, but we are, you know, just as a recap on the capital front, we are uh, moving forward with elevator retrofits at the Mission Cultural Center uh, for Latino Arts. That's both for their freight elevator as well as for their passenger elevator, um, so two elevators including a fair amount of ADA uh, barrier removal that will be a part of that project. Um, and then we are doing formal facility assessments on um, Mission Cultural Center for Latino Arts, Bayview Opera House, and the African American Art and Culture Complex. And we completed that, a facility condition assessment on SOMARS, um, which we have on file, which we completed back in April of this year. So um, we've made great headway on the capital front, but um, I would put the capital as kind of one policy bucket open for discussion as we look at how we want to be uh, continuing to support the actual house the physical plant of the four buildings, um, as well as supporting the three organizations that are the virtual centers and any uh, future capital pursuits they have, may have interest in, uh, whether they're looking for affordable rental space or whether they're looking for a permanently affordable home in, in the ownership or some other structure. Um, and then just in general, kind of the metrics around programmatic performance, community engagement. Um, I think we heard from a number of the cultural centers in these various domains of their performance. Um, so I would put it, you know, community engagement, program impact, uh, also fiscal health and governance health in terms of their functioning as nonprofit 501c3s. So um, that kind of would just be the, the introduction for hearing from commissioners what sort of observations you had, if there are any questions staff can elaborate on, and then any recommendations for as we go forward. Um, we are hoping to come to the committee um, in, I think, December would be our next meeting, or is it no November or December? <coughs> December, with a recommendation for allocating some of the new Prop E money on the programmatic side. So I mentioned the Prop E dollars, the 1.1 million approximately dedicated to capital, um, but we will be coming to you um, based on this conversation and any insights you might have uh, with some ideas and recommendations for how some of the other dollars might be spent across the cultural centers in terms of programmatic support or general operating support. Um, so with that, I open up any questions or observations from the August 27th presentations. Can I add to that as well, Director Dakini? Um, as you may recall, in the initial um, allocation for the, the property dollars for the cultural service allocation plan, there was a small amount set aside 
to execute a strategic planning process for the cultural center program. So in its 40 plus years, we as the um, implementer of this program have never fully defined kind of the mission, the purpose, and the goals that we have that are then our expectations of our centers. So part of what we're hoping to do with that cultural um, or the strategic planning process is to help tease out some of those things, which would then help our cultural centers, because we're grappling with some of these questions and, and issues with them that we can't answer because we don't know ourselves. So that's kind of where these conversations are, hopefully will help lead us as we work to define that process and do that strategic planning. I think I would follow up, that's kind of what I was gonna ask about. Um, you know, we got presented with great presentations and I feel like there's not enough money to support all the efforts that they do and all the things that they offer to the communities, you know, the, the, if there's more funds, I'd love to make some great places to, great places and communities to help out. Um, my question is, uh, to what you said, is, that, is, is, is there a way to gauge, um, for example, last year's presentation, this year's presentation, and see how funds have what worked, what didn't work um, within the organization, and you know, and if there is something that did work, is this something we could possibly um, pass along to other organizations, and so the dollars are best spent? Because I, I can't really tell from what I saw. I, mean, I saw great work and great explanations of a lot of things, but um, maybe there is a way to gauge it. I don't know, but I. You know. Yeah, but I'd like to just say that, you know, time in the seat will help you answer that question. Um, one of the things that I observe is the strengthening of the infrastructure. Um, in, in prior times, there has been a strong emphasis on sustainability. And sustainability is a broad arena, right? It's the money, but it's also the, the ways and the means to get money, some of which are fiscal appropriations, and the others can be philanthropic. And so one of the things that we have seen, and, and I would love to have a little bit more discussion on this, is what are some of those capacity builders? What are some of those tipping point, to call them interventions? One of the others is that you see much more cooperation among the leadership so that they're learning from each other. And there's kind of an intergenerational transfer that's going on that we can't always see. But that mentorship means a lot, because that's also where change often happens. And so I think that what you're suggesting is very important. And I think it's essentially, what are the best levers in order to strengthen you know, the cultural centers? An example of that was grant writing. And there, I'm, I'm not calling any names or any particular um, one of the cultural centers, but the focus on you know, how do you organize yourself, your case, your condition, what you are, so that it is not just dependent upon the money that you get from your annual appropriations, but are you in a position to seek broader philanthropy? Which means you have to look at all sorts of other factors. And I think that that is, you know, one, it's a great presentation, but two, just sitting down with, with whomever it is that Barbara would lead you to, to see that. Yeah. Um, better business models that are going on, and you can take each one of them apart. The other, I think, is, 
it, it is in that, that notion we have four brick and mortars, or bricks and mortars. Then we have three virtual. And, and how do we strengthen you know, that, that bond? You know, these are very important questions because as commissioners, we want to know, as you're saying, like, where is the highest point of leverage to get the most impact, right? right. And then on top of that, they all have very distinct challenges out of all four of them. Even like when you were saying that how do they maximize their income outside of their appropriations, some of those efforts that have been tried in the past could be challenging to say the residences at these different places when certain things have to change to, you know. So it's a really tricky minefield with the three, the four different um, brick and mortars who have very different challenges, some historical challenges, new challenges, staffing, the, the communities of which they serve. So yeah, this is a, this is a deep conversation. Um, to your question, Commissioner Ms. Lane, coming on board as a newer commissioner and kind of seeing the presentations for the first time, um, what might be helpful, because when we come back in December, we could certainly look at some of the benchmark um, comparisons. And I'm wondering if you have specific areas that might be of particular interest. I mean, since there is such a broad ways in which these organizations, I think to the other commissioners' points, they perform, you know, whether those are financial benchmarks, governance benchmarks, are there certain types of things that stood out in the, the presentations that you saw this, this first time for you that could be particularly helpful to see a comparison to prior year performance? Because we do have very extensive records in terms of their, um, any of the nonprofits we serve that have, it's over, I believe, $250,000 of which all the four, certainly, brick and mortar cultural centers are at. Um, we are required to go through the compliance monitoring program, which has a very clear outline in our, our program office for compliance, Molly Barons works with our partner departments that are funding our cultural centers, primarily the Department of Children, Youth, and Families. So we have pretty extensive data, um, and we could definitely prepare that for the December meeting and looking at it as a comparative analysis. Um, but if there were particular things that might be of interest, not just to you, but other commissioners that we could be prepared to bring, um, that could help set us up for success, perhaps in that conversation as we're looking at the allocations and particularly looking at new dollars uh, and where those new dollars might be best spent. Yeah. No, I don't have a specific area, but I was just hearing the things they were saying. And it, you know, I think any organization in San Francisco has a, a small business too, um, retaining uh, retaining people is probably one of the hardest things and um, uh, you know for an organization to retain someone do all the work and training and they have all the experience and they build all the relationships and then they can't afford to be here and then they gotta go that if anything sets the organization back they won't two steps forward then they go back five steps they gotta start all over again so I just want to look, look at Look at that part because I think this organization requires requires a team that's solid and because what these what they do is is a miracle sometimes <laughs> for the for the size and the amount of money that they have so it really does take uh, those personalities and the people that are involved to drive these things forward so I'm more interested in, in that area as far as. Yeah. How are they doing on retaining people? Is you know how can you know where that maybe that's the extra help that they could use because that's one of the main drivers I think of an organization is is that issue that we face in San Francisco, especially out of all places. You know. 
Yeah, one of the historic conversations that um, I know Director DeCaney um, and, and the whole community investments team has been, that we've discussed is, is how do you give technical assistance, right, and, and, and administrative support not support because they do the work of their own centers, the uh, directors, um, but how do you give them the tools and help point them in directions where they can make a robust and very sustainable organization. Um, the other discussion that we had a lot when we, um, the Bayview Opera House came in, did a presentation on the apprenticeship programs and those dollars spent were really effective. So finding the best programs, maybe even within each um, mm -hmm. community center that's working and leveraging those up. You know, may, maybe Bayview Opera House's model won't work at um, SoMarts or anywhere else, but um, that, that cohort sharing and then taking something that's already working and then just scaling that because that was a really um, great program and they just needed more money right and and it leads to um, hopefully people in the workforce and then also people coming back and teaching in a, a virtuous circle so i'd love to see more you know some of the money going to that or identifying those programs I would just add to um, to the issue of the challenges related retention of, of quality staff given the affordability challenges in the Bay Area. One of the things I know our team has been working on is to really support the cultural centers, and each of them are in a different place, but making sure that their benefits packages are competitive and are providing workers with health care and the core benefits that are necessary to stay in the Bay Area and have the security. Um, so. They're each in a different place, but I think that might be one area we could showcase because we really are, you know, with increases over the past several years, which have been more modest around the cost of living increases that the city's uh, been able to afford to give as a part of the a healthy budget profile. So we've had on average, I would say, it's been a minimum of one and a half percent increase to grants at least maybe five years running, but sometimes as much as two and a half percent, I believe. So there's been these modest increases for a cost of living increase, and we've been encouraging of seeing those dollars going to the benefits that are necessary to retaining the workforce. Um, and we see this as a challenge across all of our grantees as cost of living have gone up in the Bay Area. So being competitive and drawing, uh, you know, setting competitive salaries and then making sure that staff have the right benefits. And so, um, you know, that's one area we could share out a bit about what we've learned in the years and what some of the challenges are and, and where each organization is at. Um, I don't know if, if Director Mumby, you have any thoughts about how might we be able to share that out uh, in a future meeting? And for the healthcare benefits specifically, I mean, we can provide you uh, a, a snapshot of what each one's providing at this point. Um, they're all at different levels. For the most part, they're in compliance with what we're hoping. But there is some, um, you know, it's also the, the staff determining, figuring out what, what an appropriate package is, if there's a lot to that and, and interpretations of that. So working with um, the centers to find what works most appropriately with, with their staffing structure. 
And I think to go to dial back a little bit, um, at least in my tenure over the past five years, what I think we have focused most on is shifting the culture of this program. Um, because as I uh, came into the program, it, uh, there wasn't a lot of partnership, um, not only amongst the, the centers, but even with our, our staff. Um, so it was very much us versus them kind of mentality and um, the Arts Commission identifying areas of, that need to be improved, but not then providing the necessary supports to, to make that happen. So that's something we've kind of shifted. We've, we've done some targeted supports for certain agencies that were struggling, um, whether it was transition or um, an influx of funding, how to help them best plan for those. Um, and then also, just as, as Director DeCaney or Commissioner Collins was talking about, is really supporting that peer mentoring with one another. And um, what you saw at the last presentation was really a result of that, because we did convene them before, let them run through the presentation, and it was really wonderful to see each one of them stepping up and, and supporting each other and how to have the best presentation. So it, it, there wasn't a lot of competition amongst each other. It was really about helping them all shine together. Um, and another thing that we've integrated over the past five years was the compliance. So working with the, um, the city's contract compliance monitoring program. So we have a really strong idea of their infrastructural health, um, both their strengths and areas of improvement. What we're trying to grapple is the programmatic piece, how we measure that. So with the strategic planning process, we're hoping to tease that out. And again, I think a lot of the onus is, comes back on the Arts Commission as the holder of this program in defining what excellence is um, in, in some way that's achievable and attainable by you know, seven different entities that operate very uniquely and differently. Um, so that's, that's kind of the hole that we have right now, really kind of, we, we can see different areas of their programs that are strong, but how do we really measure that across all of the program? So we can share with you their fiscal health, kind of their um, infrastructure in that way, but then we're still working on that programmatic measurements. And would you comment a little bit on what was mentioned, and that is how they work with their subtenants? I'm not talking about the virtual centers, but mm -hmm. those that may be resident in or dependent upon. Right, and I mean, that's an area that, that varies from each of the centers. Some centers have the square footage where they have multiple sub-tenants, and some organizations such as Bayview, they don't have a large footprint. So they each have to mitigate relationships differently. Um, and then you have organizations where the sub-tenants have been a part of the program in essence since its conception because they may have helped develop this program. So um, there's a lot of relationship building that not only we have to do with the centers, but then the subtenant relationship with the operating landlord holder. Um, and those vary um, with center to center in kind of the, the depth and health of those relationships. Um, and it, there, it can be contentious in a lot of ways because where it's top down, we're requiring certain things that then the agency has to require the subtenants and ensuring that that line of communication is very healthy and, and transparent to ensure that there's no misunderstanding. So it's very relational in this program, which as you all aware can be very 
very uh, delicate. Um, so they're, they're dealing with that, not just the, the concepts of affordable space, um, having to do programming on a very, very small budget, but also having to manage relationships with folks within their own communities that are dealing with their own stressors as well. Robin, did you want to add anything to that? So um, in the management and programming plans that you all receive, there is an activity that is on evaluation. And so, um, you know, we want each of the organizations to be reflective of the work that they're doing and how they can do it better. Um, but if there is some um, interest in those evaluation plans, we can help fortify some of the centers who might not have a ro as robust an evaluation plan. Um, the other thing is that when we're talking about the centers, what we encourage them in these presentations is to compare themselves to themselves. Right, so one of the things with SOMART um, was that that presentation looked at how much government support they had five years ago versus now, and that they've been able to decrease the percentage of their budget that is dependent on government support. So then rather looking at them comparing each center to each other, we asked them to look at um, how they've improved upon their own work. And so that's kind of the kind of way that I would like us to think about it if we do a presentation in December. And then the last thing to go back to that staff retention in the healthcare is there's the healthcare accountability ordinance. And these centers as nonprofits do not meet the threshold that meet to have to meet those requirements. But as their greatest funder, we have looked at that policy and asked them to try to meet those requirements. So that is healthcare um, for staff that work 20 hours or more. And we've been working with the Office of Labor, Labor Standards Enforcement on what the definition of a, a health plan that meets these requirements are, and so the directors have been asked to work with that department to try to offer a health care plan that meets that requirement. Um, we've given them a three-year onboarding process where we've kind of brought up the idea, shared the policy with them, and asked them to work towards um, raising the funds to be able to meet, to meet it, and um, many of them are in the process of meeting it in this year, and others are still working on their fundraising to be able to have all of their, the um, eligible staff need it. And I, Robin, I interrupt you on the spot, but I know we um, had been providing some technical assistance on the sublease structure, and I know that had work had been held primarily by Kate Faust, our capital analyst. Um, but to the question about the resident organizations and their relationship, we have been providing some technical assistance to clarify that. Um, I know, I know, Robin, it's kind of been off of your plate for at least a couple of years, but I don't know if there was anything. Um, you would want to share about that, or if, if we feel like maybe we could bring um, some overview of that, we could even invite our former capital analyst back maybe to advise in December, but one of the things, there are city legal requirements in our city lease to the primary tenant, uh, which is, in many cases, they have the same nonprofit name as the building name. Um, and so, but we've been trying to help them understand like what it is that they need to impart on to subtenants. Um, and I don't know if Barbara or if Robin, you have any thoughts about that or if there's something we could be prepared maybe in December and, and work with Kate Faust to, to share back um, 
about who the subtenants are and what those requirements are? Well, I think the main thing for commissioners to understand is that our legal relationship is with the tenant. So the organizations that presented. And it's the tenant who then has a relationship with their subtenants. And so we don't oversee those relationships. Um, in the lease, we provide a template for a sublease that then the tenant, the nonprofit that we have the relationship with, is then supposed to use so that it ensures that all of the requirements that we place on the tenant are then passed on to any subtenant. We do need to approve the list of requested subtenants every year, and so we are aware of who the subtenants are and we approve those. Um, but otherwise, that relationship and any additional requirements that are added to the sublease are. Um, are implemented by the tenant. And then separate from subtenancy, there is um, an occasional use permit, which we have also templated. And so that is what is shared with anyone who wants to rent the space on like a daily or um, temporary basis. So, you know, I want to have an event over at one of the centers. I, I should see the occasional use permit. Um, so that it ensures, again, just like the sublease, that all of the requirements that anyone who wants to rent the space, including like the insurance requirements, that those are passed on. And so we asked to see a sample of two of those per year just to make sure that it's being used. One other thing is uh, getting proximate. Each one of those directors would welcome the opportunity to have you pay a visit, have lunch, breakfast, dinner there. And I've done that, but I've been around for a while. But I, I say there's nothing, you, know, you probably have, but in your role as a commissioner, to be able to sit down, Robin has always encouraged this, for us to be able to go down and, and spend time and just ask the questions and just feel where they are. And I think it gives a, a deeper appreciation to the other question, which was how are they connecting to the community? Right? And that's a very Im important part, because each one of them connects in different ways. Yeah, and I'm always available to have a tour, and with our new deputy director, Joanne, that might, might be an opportunity for her to also participate. So at any time of your convenience, let me know, and I'd be happy yeah, to like to at least start with a couple. It's a, it's a long tour if you want to do all four yeah. in a day. Um, two is usually a, a pretty saturated, though. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm on the, the train of thought of the community centers and you know what are potential intended goals. This might be jumping ahead of the conversation, but um, you know one of my thoughts uh, with children and youth and communities that you're serving is that it, it's great to have the center, um, but if people can't stay in the city, then that center is not theirs you know, they must leave it, right? So it's like a foster care person aging out of the system and not giving them the tools, like, oh, you're 18, go. You know, or, oh, you can't live in the city, go. So I, I really think that the educational potential of arts, um, I just went to a benefit. I saw a guy perform. He is in Hamilton. He was an underserved youth. He um, got into a program, and what he said was, I didn't know that a guy like me could go to an art school. So in part and parcel of the mentorship or apprenticeship programs, 
for arts um, services like Spot or you know the unions, the costume makers, these things that support the whole arts ecosystem is you know the school of the arts. How do you get in it? You know that takes someone saying just like the uh, the events paperwork. How do you do an event? You need to develop this. You need to do this. You need to do this. So getting into a school of the arts also takes. Or how do you get into the union? What does that mean? Or how, so that kind of technical assistance, not just for the staff, but also for the kids, so that hopefully if they start at the community centers and actually learn a trade, they can actually stay in the city and they can actually come back to the community centers. So the livability and the pathway to jobs in the arts ecosystem, I think, mm -hmm. is really Because I think big. you raise a point that this is a fragile environment. Yeah, and I'd love to see money go to that. Retaining, right, retention. Is yeah. The retention um, Thomas and I were talking about this, and so those human resource practices are extremely important. Retention um, is a broad topic, but it also gets into fairness and equity and, and all, a lot of really intricate stuff. What I'm pleased with is the advancement of the conversation. I mean, I think that for those of us who have been around for a while, um, this is a dynamic um, and developing um, story, and, and, and I don't want to be overly optimistic, but I often think like, but for where would we be? Yeah, yeah. It was, it was really impressive to see what, they, what they've done and uh, what they didn't know what to expect in the presentation, but the, the mentoring that, that you guys organized, that was really helpful, because that's how you get out and present, because a lot of times you don't have those capabilities, and that helped us understand in detail, here you, here's where we are, here's where, here's where we did, here's where we're going. And you know, the more information data that we have, the better we could make decisions for the future. So that was really helpful. And I'd like to dig in a little bit more. We'll talk. I'd like to understand a little bit more on information. Like space versus, you know, is the space, if it's a little bit bigger than the other one, do they generate more money because they have more room to do art shows or do things? Or, there's a lot of things I'd like to kind of look into and see what makes this space more dynamic or what makes this cultural center more active. There are things, everybody's got their thing, but it'd be interesting to see what those, what, what that right. factor is. And each one is so nuanced, whether it's space and the limitations of space or the leadership. Um, and one thing that we have to be mindful of as well is the goals and intent of the organization themselves. So, um, and that's where I think our strategic planning process will come in handy because, again, we haven't defined do we require all of our centers to have a youth program because they don't all have it, and is that our place to then define it? So that kind of tension between how much do we insert ourselves beyond um, what makes a healthy nonprofit. And so those are some tensions that we hope to maybe through the strategic planning process and, and engaging a broader sector of the community so that they can tell us what they their expectations are at the centers is, will be very helpful. So I think that's something exciting that um, it'd be great to have all of your, your um, I'm going to volunteer you to participate in that. This is somewhat related, but I, it's a question of the um, 
the diversification of the resources of the cultural center nonprofits. And there has, within philanthropy, oftentimes private philanthropy uh, sets a cap. And it says that if you get more than 50% of your funding from government, you're not qualified for the private philanthropic dollars. So that, that has been a standard policy in a lot of private philanthropic family foundations or even community foundations. And so we have, in the city, there is, I think, some debate about the tension of that, that policy. Um, and the tension being that not every organization is in the same place to go out and do private fundraising, whatever the issue may be around capacity or um, kind of access to wealth or where what communities have greater access to wealth than others through intergenerational wealth. And so one policy conversation that might set us up well for a December conversation, because if we look at allocating out new resources, I do think that some of the cultural centers could get to a place where we're looking at going above a 50% threshold, being that they are you know, pretty significant grants we're giving. Actually, the cultural center grants are some of the largest grants to arts and culture organizations in the city. Um, in fact, I think some of them are the, lar the largest um, that are given by the city and county of San Francisco to any organization. So one policy conversation, I think, would be about whether how the commissioners feel about setting that as a requirement or is it a case-by-case -case instance um, and i think we've historically tried to stick to not funding an organization above 50 percent of government funding because we wanted them to be qualified to access those other private foundation dollars that we know that if we gave them say 55 percent of their total budget they would be disqualified from applying for um, and, and private philanthropy is certainly examining this from an equity framework, but I would say it's still a widely utilized benchmark. And so I think it poses for us a question of, of do we want to set that benchmark as a, in an effort to empower them to be better suited for applying for private dollars, or is it our feeling that as a commission, we are not as concerned about that because we want to just support that programming. And, and I see both sides of the dialogue, and it's a very robust dialogue, not one I don't think we can solve or settle today, but I do think this could come up when we're looking at the allocations of new dollars, um, because I think some of, the, or some of the cultural centers are near the threshold of 50%. So if we were to increase a grant to them, we could put them above that 50% threshold. So it's something I think might be, I don't know if people have initial thoughts about that or if there's other information or data we could bring uh, in December to be better prepared. Because I, I can say, I think we know of one or two of the cultural centers, depending on the allocation breakdown, um, that could be at that, uh, crossing that line. Is there any further discussion? <clears throat> Is there any public comment on the cultural centers program? Seeing none, may I now move to agenda item number five, the Racial Equity Initiative. This is a discussion overview of the arts impact endowments allocation for racial equity initiatives and the discussion of criteria for potential requests for proposals. Um, well, I will say a couple words and then invite uh, Director Mummy to add to that and any other staff that might want to add. Um, so this is just a reminder that the commission earlier this year allocated $225,000 of the uh, Proposition E funds that were of the six months, uh, January 1, 2019 to June 30, 2019. Uh, as a reminder, the Board of Supervisors and 
uh, mayor's office were gracious uh, in, in budgeting six months of property money in the budget. And since it did pass so overwhelmingly in November of 2018, we got those resources. But given that they came to us so quickly in the first, six, the second half of the fiscal year, the first six months of the calendar year 2019, uh, we made some allocations in the cultural services allocation plan. We set a certain dollar amount, about 600,000 approximately, to a rainy day fund to be utilized for an emergency, whether that is a, um, a natural event that, you know, knock on wood, but a seismic event or some other uh, natural disaster that were to strike the city, that we would be able to access those resources or a sustained recession or reduction in the hotel tax. And then we dedicated an alignment with our racial equity action plan, $225,000 for a racial equity initiative to advance racial equity uh, within the arts and culture ecology. And then we dedicated another third bucket to evaluation to make sure we're monitoring and evaluating the impact of all property dollars and how we can best uh, report out on the story of the impact of this investment. But so today the topic is to discuss the terms by which we want to look at the $225,000. Um, and so we've prepared some questions here and then I would invite um, Director Mumby to share any thoughts the staff have about how, how we're proposing to move forward. Um, thank you. Uh, what you have before you is a, a one-pager, and these are just kind of um, brainstorming that our team and Director Gattini have kind of thrown out as we're discussing how to utilize the, the funds, and it's just really just a placeholder for you all to have this conversation and help guide and direct um, how we move forward. And um, it gives a little context that uh, Director Caney reviewed just now. And, and an example of Seattle, who has been kind of the front runner in the equity work at, at the city level and kind of their approach or their goal for their work. And then finally, there is um, a reminder around Proposition 209. So that is a little bit of a, a challenge that we have, especially within our cultural equity endowment. Um, where funding is legislated, legislated to go to marginalized communities, which then is then several years later, the passage of Prop 209 prohibited our ability to do that. Um, but we have been able to be somewhat creative in, in how we approach the funding um, to to circumvent or, or not. Um, um, not violate the Proposition 209, but yet be able to still have outcomes that support our mandate through the legislation. So as we have these conversations, we have to keep going back to Prop 209 and how we approach this work, when, especially when it comes to funding and granting. Um, but you know, we're getting pretty good at nuancing our, our approach to that. Well, if I can just add, because it's important to be, be very clear, uh, the Prop 209 would prohibit us from ever setting up a program or a grant-making program that looks at race or ethnicity as a qualifier or a scoring criteria. Um, so that's something that we're just putting forward because as we look at a racial equity initiative, we need to make sure that the criteria provide access to anybody. Um, but we do want to also then understand that there are different organizations and different individual artists at different places in advancing racial equity work. So I think, but we just kind of, I think it's important. So I appreciate the staff's inclusion of the reference. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's some guiding questions that we have here before you. Thank you. 
have a question with the guiding question. Do you all have a recommendation at this point? We do not. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I, I, the, the one thing that we've assumed is that this work would be granted out or contracted out. And the context of the assumption, and then Barbara, please chime in, is just, uh, it's twofold. One, it's our feeling that in a promising practice of facilitating a conversation around racial equity, having a government funder actually facilitate that, whatever person on staff did it, is a weird power dynamic and actually could be at, you know, disadvantageous to advancing racial equity. There's certain power that we hold in the room as a funder, and you know, I think we want to continue to partner in that work, but the idea would be to have a third party, um, you know, you could say more objective party leading that work, um, and it would not hold the same power dynamic of having the funder be in that facilitating role. Um, so that's one of the reasons for the assumption that we would be RFQing this funding to a to a party to come in and facilitate the initiative. And I just would say that the second part to that is that staff capacity is an ongoing issue, and we want to uh, take advantage of the expertise of many. Uh, I think entities that would be competitive in an RFQ, given work in this area, and that we could also all learn from. I mean, we've been as a team working through the Race Forward and Government Alliance for Race and Equity training module, both as a full staff and as, as you all recall, as a commission as well. Um, and so I think it also gives us a chance to continue to learn from experts in the field. Um, so those are the only assumptions we've come with. The um, other questions are really for the commission since we're thrilled to have this resource allocation and kind of guidance from you all about um, the answers to some of these questions or any other questions you might want to posit as we were to go back and draft up requests for qualifications. So to further elaborate, I think the, the most important thing that we are hoping to, to get from the commissioners or, or what are the goals for, for the funds? Um, I think once we identify what the goals are and the in intended outcome, it would be much easier for, for staff to go back and try to make a recommendation on how to utilize those funds. Um, and so, I mean, we see this work playing out throughout the city in, in various ways, but um, what is the purpose of that money? Are, are we trying to divert, as it says here, are we trying to diversify the workforce? Are we trying to retain workforce? Are we trying to um, diversify the board governance? Like what is it that you feel that this, these funds could go to best um, support that would then push the needle toward equity further along? Um, and I, you know, I think once we have something like that, then I think the rest will probably fall into place much easier. I think the Commissioner Moosley um, really helped us out. Um, Commissioner Moosley helped us out earlier in the conversation for us to better understand which levers are most effective. Um, I, because I think that if we are effective in some of those questions, by nature, there will be more justice. Right? There will be more equity. And so, in, in a sense, it's looking at what is the most, what is the proxy for that. If we have really good retention practices focused on our community centers, for example, recognizing the populations that they serve, more justice is served more equity is, is, is dispensed. And so it could be that we still need some time, that we need some more data. We need to understand what Gage and Race Forward have helped us to understand. 
so that we have a body of, of information upon which we can really act. Because I'm sure that we could probably give top of head or more emotional um, responses, but I think we're called upon here to arbitrate between a very strong racial equity statement and what we believe is important in terms of that justice, but also understanding you know, what context we live in legislatively and not when wanting to run afoul of that. Universities that are facing matters like this and other bodies that must ensure you know, that these issues, these historic issues, if we are focusing on a lot of historic issues that are undermining where we are, you know, the economy and, and other things, I, I, I think that that will help us mm -hmm. you know, to be more specific and to create a record that is based on, on data. You know? yeah. So what you're saying is, you know, because I look, I look at these points, and like the first one, and you know, for me to say diversify the arts because equal workforce, of course, but you know, that's a top-down decision feels like rather than kind of seeing what what what's out there and what's working, what's not working, and then. And then be able to make a decision on that. And, I, I'm, and I'm just saying this without really being very familiar mm -hmm. with with uh, with what's going on in in those ecosystems. And I would like to know more. Mm -hmm. But um, it would feel it would make more sense to me personally to have more information to be able to decide what to allocate and who needs who needs the most or who needs. Extra help, or yeah, because in a sense, if you have more effective boards, right, at, at the level that are able to access more resources, justice is done because you've increased that. Uh, those, those, you've taken that pinch point out, right? So, without specific reference to who that could be, I know that the Museum of Modern Art is working on more diverse boards. That also gets into what, what uh, Director DeCaney was talking about, more diverse programming. Like, what is the story that you're telling? And how do you increase the ability to tell the story, which increases the audience, which increases the success? You know, I mean, so I think that some of those levers are extremely important to understand. And I think you opened that conversation up earlier. Two. This may get us into the second question of what are potential funding areas to support because I think the challenge we have, and this is a bit of the chicken and egg game, is that this is such a huge topic to tackle that even gathering data is in and of itself a huge, it becomes kind of a meta challenge, right? Because there are so many levels to even start to look at data because, you know, there has been, so just to kind of look at the work we have participated in within the last year, our former senior data and racial equity analyst, Dr. Tang Dao Shaw, at the invitation of the San Francisco Symphony, helped lead a day-long training using the Race Forward and Gear framework. And we did that in partnership with the Human Rights Commission. And I will, I should have also pre preluded my comments with saying whatever we do, we'll want to do in partnership with them. And just today at noon, Mayor Breed signed the legislation authorizing the new Office of Racial Equity. So it's a very timely conversation, and we would absolutely want to work in partnership with that office. Um, 
but I do think we're being asked for some parameters of where we want to be working. And maybe one that we could talk about today is, are we talking about just with our grantees and people who've been successful through our, our application process and grants, grants for the arts grantees in which we co-administer this? Because even thinking about who we might survey or who we're asking, do we, do we want the opinions of 860,000 residents of San Francisco or the millions of people who come and visit? Or you know, I think for us, it's been a challenge to kind of decide the scope of something with a set dollar allocation of who are we even asking for an opinion on on the matter because there are so many opinions and so many you know, complex ways to look at racial equity in our ecology and what it is and what it means. So I, I think we're even struggling with the starting point. Like, Are we just asking our grantees of the last two years um, what their needs are in focusing on grantees? Um, I know there's interest much more broadly from people who haven't been successful at getting grants from the Arts Commission but that opens up a whole new audience of people to engage. And frankly, we could spend all $225,000 just surveying people for their opinions about where we would focus, right? So I think it's, a, it's kind of that tension of like, where do these resources go? Do we want to jump in and start to focus in uh, a portion of the broader arts ecology? I mean, we could choose to allocate these resources to surveying and better understanding, but uh, unfortunately, I would say the field lacks clear data, and that's one of the big challenges. Um, data arts has been, I think there's been a lot of discussion about how data arts has had limited information on demographics of staff and board. They've been improving in that area, but unfortunately, there's just not a lot of historic uh, data at scale to be looking at that we could probably dive into more readily available. So then the question becomes, are we, do we want to allocate some of these resources to actually the surveying and or engagement of the community to better determine an initiative? And it's not to say that this money needs to be the end all be all. We could dedicate future allocations out of Prop E to continue the work and maybe that is the best use. But I, and I, that's, I guess the question is, do we want to you know, who, whose opinions or what data do we want to look at given the potential breadth of the data we could be right. pulling together. Sampling, right. Um, what, is there a time limit for allocation of the money? Because it, it does it have to be in a fiscal year or? Yeah, that's the beauty of Proposition E is the funds do roll forward. So we, we there is no time limit in terms of a kind of use it or lose it framework. Yeah. So we've dedicated this out of the first six months um, we are hoping, looking to dedicate ongoing funds, both to evaluation, but also advancing the racial equity work within the field. So it's not the only allocation we could add to, and it does not sunset. So the time frame is actually pretty open. Is there, um, you said I know what's going on with different departments citywide. Is there a, um, from Mayor Breed's office, a North Star framework that, that Meaning, we as a city um, resolve to uh, address um, racial inequities in this fashion, or as as a I know the board of supervisors sometimes they 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 convene and pass um, not mandates but um, intentions um, or state or uh, put a stake in the ground for the city as a policy, um, but is there, gosh, is there some convening from the mayor's office and the different department heads on a unified 
idea of what that is because if she's putting legislation out for that purpose, then how it manifests in each department is obviously going to be different. Children need the families, right? Might be, or education, um, or are they just letting all the departments sort it out themselves? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay, okay. I'm just. There is. Well, you know. I'm seeing um, if there's another. The new office of racial equity will have the clarity of a unified kind of effort, and yes. certainly, um, Mayor Bree has been very clear and the need to advancing equity um, broader, not just racial equity, but gender mm -hmm. equity, and yeah. and that across the city. Um, I think we are being asked as individual departments to come forward with where we see need to contribute to that. Um, and the Office of Racial Equity will have three new staff, but they aren't there yet. So, yes. so we're, we're kind of, a, you know, we were the first city department to adopt a racial equity statement at the commission level. Um, and so thank you all for your leadership on that and to the staff who worked hard to come up with a really wonderful racial equity statement. Um, we were actually, I believe, the first city department participating in the Government Alliance for Race and Equity to have the two-year racial equity action plan. And, you know, this kind of is the first time we're taking that step to an external-facing commitment. And I think that's part of the question is, are we, is the external face towards our grantees as kind of a first-tier group of stakeholders? Or, you know, one of the other options we were positing is, is this a program that anyone can apply to and we set clear criteria for? So, uh, you know, Race Forward serves many organizations, not just the city. And so, you know, we could provide many grants to an organization to have Race Forward come in and work with a nonprofit to kind of define their own racial equity action plan using that model. Um, you know, so any of those are options. I mean, I, I think in terms of what the mandate is at a city level has yet to be fully formed mm -hmm. in a very concrete way in terms of how we are serving the public. Um, it's more clear in terms of how it is we're using racial equity in our own internal analyses and our own HR practices as the city. Yes. But that's kind of the internal facing side. Um, and I know Human Rights Commission provides a lot of training, a lot of support, so obviously we would work with them and they might be the partner agency in this RFQ, uh, along with Grants for the Arts, to think about how we would go about this work. Um, <laughs> but it's kind of defining for lack of a better word, the community or communities we're wanting to engage, even so if there's a next stage of engagement, kind of defining the parameters for that. So I guess my question is, I know that the lack of data is an issue in and of itself, but what data do we have? <laughs> and can we kind of start from that? Like, do we have data from our current grantee pool, right? Like, and that might help us answer the question, this is about our grantees or not. Right. I'm curious, like, and is, is this just, you know, some brainstorming? How do we get to these two points? Like, did that come out of something that we're hearing from, you know, the folks that we are currently funding right now? Um, you know, and so that's one, I think that's one way I think that we can kind of start getting to this. I mean, the other piece for me, too, is that we're never going to be done with racial equity work, right? And so, like, whatever we do, it would be great for us to think about this being a starting point and how do we set ourselves up for the long term rather than you know think that we're we're not we're never gonna solve this issue. And it, and it's a two-year plan, right? And so you know, how do we how do we just plan for the long term? And I you know, talking thinking about data, I mean we, we do have extensive data about who our grantees are, who they serve. 
Um, we have not been able to collect like data on board development or the board makeup, but we will be doing that with our new system. It, again, it's it, how we collect data then directly corresponds to Prop 209. So we have to be very careful about how we collect data when it comes to race and ethnicity. So we've been you know, trying trial and error and how, how we get to that. But what we do have is some anecdotal um, feedback from different cities who have done this work, what has worked, what has not worked. So lessons learned. Um, so some learning opportunities of what not to do, um, first and foremost. And things around, you know, Specifically, I think the most, think the biggest thing that has resonated with me, especially from what Seattle learned and what I have witnessed kind of playing out and some of the work that's starting to happen, is around the need to um, meet people at where they're at. And we, we also saw that internally as we started doing this work on how to really support individuals and organizations who are at different levels coming into this work and, and being mindful of that. So um, something like a work plan will be different for every organization. So how do we ensure that they're driving that work too, but informed? Um, and so there, there's things like that that we can share um, for sure. Um, data, again, would be a little bit a, a bigger undertaking to get something really concrete. And, um, and what resonated with me is the fact that even though these issues are systemic and been around for centuries, the, the vernacular approach is relatively new. So whether or not we have like the curriculum or the formula of what works, we may not have that. And, and we, we are, as humans, evolving and, and changing so that we have to be flexible with how we approach it as well. And I will say there is the, a racial equity working group of individuals who volunteered to come together after the symphony, the training we co-hosted with the Human Rights Commission at the symphony. And I will say there is, and Commissioner Parker Pennington has been representing us at that, and the staff have attended as well. And they're being facilitated by the Human Rights Commission. And I do sense that there's some urgency for dollars to hit the work um, in a way that people can access and have a feel that, to the point that it's work that's ongoing, right? That this is not, we're not gonna solve quote unquote racial equity and, and have, have a clearer ending. So, and I, and I would say it's not also the beginning, really, because the cultural equity endowment was a national leading model in how we were assuring an equity focus in grant making, and it's, it's held up clearly as a really wonderful model that many cities look to in terms of their own defining of grant making. So I think the question is, how do we build on this legacy of the cultural equity endowment? Um, I, I think we do know that the data shows and other studies have shown that the cultural equity endowment has yielded one of the most diverse and equitable grant-making models for government funding in the country. Um, but then there's also organizations we don't fund who don't meet the cultural equity goals, so therefore they're not funded. And, and I think that's part of the tension, too, is that, you know, I've heard from some of those organizations, well, they have a hard time meeting the racial, cultural and racial equity goals because they haven't received funding to support their work in this area. But then we know that there are people who've been doing this work for years who need the support to sustain it in a city where affordability is growing as a challenge, right? So I think um, having that kind of focus of how do we you know, how do we segment the different communities we work with and then how do we prioritize even the data we want to look at? 
Um, we would probably have the best data is going to be from our grantees, obviously. And we do have staffing data and demographic self-reported data um, that we could put forward. But that isn't going to catch all the other organizations that haven't been successful. So I think that's the question is, do we want to look internally as kind of a place to start is where we have the greatest data and information and just kind of focus on that? Um, or do we want to set some parameters and do some additional data gathering of kind of broader ecology? Yeah, maybe, uh, maybe we could decide on, let's say, 80% will go to the people that we're grantees that we're familiar with, with their work and we know their mission and know what they do. And then 20% will identify and deal with the issue that you were talking about. We're like, okay, well, we can't get to that point because we need some funding, right? And maybe this organization out there that, I don't know, just, I think trying to figure out too much, like diving into data and try to figure out too much of how this is gonna go, it will be spending a lot of time and money on where we can already, the office already could identify what organizations are actually doing this and qualify and let's support them and then leave a certain amount to identify new ones. Yeah, I would follow on that, and, and I may be wrong, right? But I, I would say that if we look back uh, 10 years ago, we looked at our American Indian, I, that terminology is something we've accepted, right? Within the commission, work 10 years ago as opposed to today. It may be a model of, I want to say, more towards success. Because if we looked at where we were 10 years ago, we were not in the same place as we are today. And without comment on any of the particulars, there may be some models of success about like what did we do that causes us now to be perhaps at a tipping point, perhaps at a tipping point. And it was a series of very important one conversations and investments, and also developing um, the infrastructure so that that could then begin to create some more self-generated activity and in partnerships, collaborations, et cetera, leading to, let's say, whatever the outcomes are. Right. So I think it's probably both. There may be data that we should look at, and then there may be some models of success that we have helped to propagate from within that, that may be grantees that are within our dockets, and then, as you're saying, that aren't. But I think that there's probably, I think what we're saying is, is that we need some more kind of grounding principles before we can probably fully informed, but you're also saying that there's some urgency associated with it, right. so that we're not trailing out you know, a year from now trying right. to figure out these baseline yeah. questions. Right. Um, one of the thoughts that I had, just, I, mean, I don't know where this fits into the bigger conversation, but um, with the arts and the grantees and um, historic grantees or people that have an access program, It's such a big topic, right? And as you said, is it, it do you do you define actually what that is, or do you go forth and do this work and hope that you get a sliver of it? But um, as a as a curatorial um, concept, like Sanctuary City, like Continuous Thread, like um, I'd love to see funds go towards a project or initiative. Right, that that is citywide, like the like the uh, poster art series, that um, really has this big breadth and has a wide um, 
um, input from many artists, but is along a, a, a thread of thought. Um, and I think it's really, um, it puts a stake in the ground from the arts community, it helps define it from several viewpoints, it's public facing, so it, it helps advance the idea of what it is, um, not just in thought, but in an artistic expression. Um, so that's just a thought that I had, that if, 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 it, if we did go to the, the existing grantee pool, that it would be given to them as a, as a concept as well for expression or some guidelines there to help that, to, to ask the community, you define it. What does this mean to you? How is this expressed? How can we bring it forward through the arts? Thought. Well, I wonder what might be helpful given the, the kind of the breadth and depth of this topic that maybe we could as a team come in present some draft guidelines that would be towards the RFQ. I, I think the data collection, and we could also do that based on some data that we have on our own grantees. And I think looking, the Seattle model, I do think is one of the best models that we've seen nationally. It's very well regarded in the field. And essentially what that requires is that if you're going to be a grantee of the Seattle city and county, Seattle city, because they're not a city and a county, so Seattle, the city, you have to go through this racial equity um, curriculum and module to make sure that you're, you're advancing and committing to the advancement of racial equity. It started voluntary, so we could maybe look at it as a voluntary option first and foremost for interested organizations that want to apply for that support. Um, but Seattle did eventually move it to be mandatory, so did not actually get the funding from the city, you have to participate in that. I should remind us too that whatever we are recommending has to be in consult with the city administrator who oversees these funds. So we could perhaps take this, uh, I think it's been a very valuable conversation, take that back to our colleagues at Grants for the Arts and with the city administrator and maybe provide a more concrete sketch of it. You know, like, I think this is a good basis for the conversation, but provide some scope of what we would recommend in a more formalized way. Like we would recommend the grant go to one entity to administer uh, a voluntary program for organizations, and we would serve 15 nonprofit arts and culture organizations in the first year. Mm -hmm. You know, we could provide and posit some more of a concrete framework um, to kind of what it would look like, and then bring some of the data on our grantees. I mean, that's probably what we would have available without having to commit additional resources. But does that seem like that might be a helpful next step to looking at a more concrete program model? Yeah. To give you a little more context, what Tom was saying, I think it's yeah. something to, to think about, as well as Seattle, even though it was mandatory what they discovered, again, going back to the fact that everybody is coming to the work at a different level. So having one curriculum that is mandatory for all organizations wasn't effective. Um, some of the things that we've kind of tossed around um, is from our own internal learned lessons around the work plan, like do we fund entities to create their own racial equity work plan, which would be customized based on where they're coming into the work. And I think one of the challenges that some of our non-successful grantees, especially in the cultural equity initiative pool, um, which requires them to have a, a documented history of serving specific 
marginalized communities. Those entities that are, are not quite there, who don't specifically serve specific communities, are having a hard time getting into that pool. And so some of them are coming in requesting funds to develop work plans. Um, to further that, that work, but yet they don't have the, the evidence of doing the work, so there's that crux. So then wanting to be more equitable, wanting to do the racial equity work, having the intent, but not having the resources or support to do that work. So that's, you know, we, we have entities that are long-term grantees that are, are incredible doing work. They may not necessarily have it written down or documented in a way that is then evidence-based that they're measuring. Um, then you have the entities that are doing great work on a more general scale that's not necessarily equity-minded. How do we support them to be more equity-minded? So those are kind of the two areas of, of running that we're seeing for grantees. And the work plan, I, I can say that from our own work, approaching the equity work, it really starts internally. So even with the Arts Commission, um, with cultural equity being just one small arm of what we were doing, the work that we've done over the past few years has now made that grow through the whole agency, and that's why we're seeing growth and, and movement forward. It starts internally to external. And I think though, something around a work plan is what is now helping us focus that work, and, and a lot of that came about because of our participation in care. We were floundering a little bit on how do we kind of organize this into a bucket and GARE helped us develop those work plans. So those are some of the conversations we're having and suggestions that we're having internally. I see. Is there any further discussion on this matter? Agenda item number seven, I mean number five, racial equity initiative. Do I hear any public comment? Hearing none, may I move now to agenda item number six, the Ebony McKinney Leader Art Arts Leader Award. The action is discussion of possible motion to approve the Ebony McKinney Arts Leadership Award to Juliana Delgado Lopera and authorize the Director of Cultural Affairs to enter into a grant agreement for an amount not to exceed $5,000 at this time. So thank you, Commissioners. Um, we, due to timing, um, ideally this would have come forward um, prior to the convening, but based on the timing and the guidelines and adjudicating the panel, we're now coming forward to request this, um, and this is for the, the winner of the second annual Ebony McKinney Arts Leadership Award, which was actually adjudicated by a group of peers of Ebony McKinney, um, as well as, I believe, the, the last year's winner. As, as well. Um, so similar to the Artistic Legacy Grant, what our hope is that eventually the winners will be the one adjudicating um, for their peers. And so um, we have done a lot of work to streamline the application and continue to, to work on that to kind of really meet what we're trying to get with emerging leaders. And we're just really excited to have Juliana Delgado Lopera as the uh, panel's choice this year. So this is to award her the grant. Is there any discussion on the decision? Um, is there any public comment on this matter? Seeing none, may I call for a vote. All those in favor? Oh, do we have a motion? Hmm? Oh, do we have a motion? So Second. Second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Opposed? Seeing none, motion carries. May I now move to agenda item number seven, new business and announcements. I'd like to turn this over to President Ordiana, please. Thank you, Commissioner Collins. 
So just a couple of announcements. One is it's with uh, bittersweet news that um, I announced that Commissioner Lydia So has resigned from the Arts Commission because she has been appointed to the Historic Preservation Commission. Um, and Mayor Bree has just sworn her hand Friday, um, and so um, quickly moving, um, and um, we are gonna we're working on really honoring her service um, at the next uh, full commission meeting. So we'll be able to invite her back um, and thank her for her dedicated service to this committee um, and to her work on the uh, Civic Design Review Committee um, and everything that she's done for the Arts Commission overall. So. I'm really excited to have her in that new role, and I think that will continue to build um, on a strong partnership between the Arts Commission and the Historic Preservation Commission moving forward. Um, I also want to announce that um, I have appointed members of the Street Artist Program Committee. Um, as you remember, our bylaws state that um, uh, we, that those committee members will comprise of a, a subset of individuals who sit on the Community Investments Committee right now. Um, and I really want to thank Commissioner Shiota, um, who has agreed to chair that committee, um, and thank her so much for her uh, leadership, um, and also I want to thank um, Commissioner uh, Shelby and Musle, who will be joining Commissioner Shiota um, to comprise that committee. Thank you. And um, I think staff will come to, uh, start working with um, the commissioners to schedule their next meeting. Yes, thank you, President Orniana. And just to remind uh, the members of the Street Arts Program Committee, this is an ad hoc committee, so we'll try to be efficient in calendaring um, to kind of kind of combine any hearings that we need to have. I believe we have two items currently uh, waiting for the committee to be formed. And so now that you are formed, um, our program officer uh, and Tricky will work to make sure we find a time that's amenable to all of your schedules. Um, and you know, if we can, we'll schedule that adjacent to another meeting. Um, but you know, we typically don't envision this committee needing to meet maybe more than three times a year. Um, so we'll, we'll see kind of how that plays out. But I think um, we do appreciate the three of you stepping up and being willing to uh, serve. I think we've done a really great job stepping forward and advancing um, the art vendor markets that we oversee through the street artist licensing legislation. And I know some of you have served on this committee, and so I appreciate your institutional knowledge coming forward um, and to welcoming Commissioner Muslay as a new member of the, of the team. So uh, we'll be working, we shall be scheduling with you shortly. I'd just like to call attention again to the exhibition that's at the De Young Elisa Rihanna uh, in pursuit of Venus. It's very much um, a, a narrative show that's up, but it really gets into a lot of the issues of how we uh, think about uh, who we are um, in our most ancient selves. This is a, really focused on Hawaii um, and the, the Polynesian story, and it's in contrast with some other work that was done in the 19th century that is more um, pictorial and ethnographic. Um, so it's an interesting conversation about the, respon the, the responsibility of curatorial work uh, accompanying really difficult pieces. Mm. It's worth seeing. Are there any other uh, matters to bring before in this part of the agenda of new business and announcements? 
Is there any public comment? Seeing none, item number seven is complete, and now we'll move to item number eight, which is adjourned. This meeting is adjourned.